today our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Uh, what do you make of the statement that Iraq has no weapons of mass destruction and is not developing any? They're lying. You're either with us or you're with the enemy. That's, that's clear. I will continue to make that clear. I, I think we should actually level, level six countries. I'll name Saddam them if you Hussein want. Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until something stops him. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. the first evil. American to be killed in a deliberate anthrax attack. Saddam must love you, and I'm sure he must don't have even, Don't even try but, and do that well, well, just, inflammatory. Just, I'm not a Saddam Hussein apologist. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into here. Unforgettable. You've got five seconds. Damn. Who the fuck knocked our buildings down? Who the man behind the World Trade Massacre? Step up now. Where the four planes at, huh? Okay, can you believe it's been 20 years, 20 years since the world and America changed forever, and uh, 9-11, 9-11, this will be part one of a two-part 9-11 20th anniversary episode, where I think, um, what we're going to do is obviously, um, we've talked about the, uh, you know, the political ramp and geopolitical ramifications of all the uh, the wars and deceit and lies that uh, gave birth to 9-11 and the war on terrorism and everything that came after it. But I thought for these next two episodes, we would do a favor, particularly to our, our younger listeners, those of Gen Z, who may not remember or may not even have been alive at the time uh, that the world changed forever. And we all watched those towers fell on TV. We will not be talking about anything lame like oh what you oh you you mean you were also having a totally normal day until that happened please do share no we will be talking about sort of what what america felt like and the ways in which uh like our our culture politics media movies music everything uh responded to uh being attacked by terrorists and i guess like i i i bring this up because you know on the 20th anniversary um we are entreated uh, I saw it with the sevens every year, but I saw it, I saw it um, over the weekend as well. We um, we are entreated often to you know at a time when we've never been so divided. We are encouraged to remember the way we all felt on nine twelve, when the country really came together. And I would just like hopefully emphasize over these uh, this this series here that uh, that feeling that we all had was one of absolute insanity. Um, just, just bloodthirsty rage, stupidity, ignorance, and I like it. I, I know, I know. It's it, it's hard to say now, post Trump, post COVID, but I, I think we'll make a pretty good case that America has never been stupider than it, right after nine eleven, and just like the, the ensuing years, and just, just it's just everything that that, that uh, this moment in our culture helped mid- midwife into existence. And I think the the way to look at it is we'll be going through this, and a lot of it seems ridiculous. And when I was putting together my outline uh, for everything we're going to talk about, I think the thing that struck struck me the most is how totally inadequate all of these big cultural shifts were and how, I mean, they've lasted in ways that are unexpected, but like the full force of the like jingoistic post 9-11 cultural moment uh, mostly dissipated in the second Bush administration. And it hasn't really come back since. Or, I mean, it's come back, but in ways that are unexpected and sort of mutated hybrids of that original moment. But we all felt like, I mean, the, the thing was, everyone really thought the culture had changed forever. And I think in going through this, I think we're going to learn that the culture really didn't change at all. Or, or if it did, it did in ways in which the people trying to change it was not their intention. So, but before we get into that, I think we would be uh, remiss if we did not talk about, over the weekend, the current 9-11, the current 9-11 anniversary, the 20th anniversary, which was marked by uh, all of the former living presidents other than Donald Trump meeting at Ground Zero to uh, speak words, give inspirational speeches, and, you know, remember that moment. And the most recent living president, Donald Trump, doing color commentary on what is essentially a bare-knuckle boxing match that's held in a barge in international waters because it uh, can't be sanctioned by any state boxing commission. Did you guys catch any of the uh, Trump doing color commentary for the 
Evander Holyfield, Vitor Belfort boxing match. Evander Holyfield, by the way, uh, what is he, 65 years old? Yeah, no, no he should. Like he should. 55, something like that. Mentally, he's like. Well, yeah, he's you know, pick, pick one, either 190 years old or newborn. Yeah. Like, this is not a man who should have been sanctioned to fight, much less against a Vitor Belfort, who was allowed to shoot a uh, synthetic test into his uh, blood again. For people who don't know, Vitor Belfort was, he was sort of like a prodigy UFC champion back in the very early days of the UFC. Um, had a pretty bad tragedy happen to him. His sister was kidnapped and killed in, in Brazil, in his native Brazil. Uh, he becomes a born-again Christian, and he also uh, gets sanctioned to shoot synthetic testosterone into his body. It's called testosterone replacement therapy. And he went on quite a run in the early twenty, early to mid-2010s, and then eventually like he got to a real athletic commission, and eventually they were like, that doesn't seem like we should let you do that. And then the run ended. But he's back doing what he was doing. I, I didn't see if he he comes out to a pretty funny walkout song where it's like the theme from 300, but himself screaming in Portuguese over it. <laughs> the only guy who does something like that. But yeah, no, um, shouldn't have happened. But uh, honestly, so Trump was in the booth with uh, Junior Dos Santos, who's a former UFC heavyweight champion. And as you would guess, absolutely loved JDS. JDS is a big, strong guy and just totally ignored <laughs> his son while JDS was talking. Yeah, to it him. was it was it was Trump and Don Trump Jr. were were paid to do uh yeah, color commentary for this like I mean honestly should not have been licensed boxing fight boxing match. Um and I have a quote here from Trump. Uh the, the fight only lasted about like like a minute and a half or something. It didn't even go one round before Evander Holyfield was knocked out, was knocked out or the fight was, you know, just called, um, during, during it, <laughs> while it was going on, Trump said, they say there is a lot of people watching. I can't imagine why. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. I like missing. Yeah. That was, it was, it's cool that like, Don Jr. Probably was like thinking about this for weeks and weeks. Like, Oh, I'm going to, I've like learned so much about MMA. I'm friends with all these conservative MMA fighters now and all these boxers. I'm going to show my dad that I'm like good at something now. And then they get there and Trump, like the only time Trump would acknowledge him is when he would cut like Don Jr. would kind of fuck someone's name up and he'd be like, no, just, I mean, the only color commentator who would be like, why is anyone watching this crap? He's oh, and it's during his favorite week of the year, New York Fashion Week. <laughs> I didn't see, I didn't get to see the entire thing. I don't know if he referred to New York Fashion Week at all. I know he's had a lot of opinions on that before. But I, I mean, gotta he, say, it it does feel like he really wishes in his heart that he were doing color commentary at a, a runway show. That's that, that really yeah. does feel like more what he his heart would want. That's why this was such a good event because it's all like. It's a perfect example of like the Trump world trying to slot him into things they already like, but it's like that's not really like Trump's been involved with MMA before. He's attended a lot of UFCs. He's friends with Dana White. He was involved in his own MMA promotion that, in fact, Michael Cohn was the CEO of Affliction. <laughs> but like that's he wants to be Donald Trump wants to be sitting in like a booth above the floor of a Virgil Abloh party. And like talking about who's a star and who isn't. Well, I mean, yeah, doing a, commentary for like the Met Gala or something. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I, I just well, uh, the contrast could not be more marked though between like the the speech that everyone was like talking about how stirring and how moving it was, which is, is of course George W. Bush deigning to show his face at the nine eleven memorial. I mean, one of the chief the chief villains of nine eleven. I mean, he showed up there and gave a speech that, like, you know, the MSNBC said is creaming themselves over because he connected the terrorists who attacked the Twin Towers with the terrorists who attacked Congress on 1-6. And it just made it be that, like, you know, like these violent extremists, they don't share many beliefs with the ones that attacked us on 9-11. But, you know, like the, our true enemies are at home now in America. And he said, like, this, this idea that, like, you know, we've lost something as a country. 
we've lost that that nine twelve moment. I mean, and this is coming from a guy who, as Donald Trump himself said in response to George W. Bush's comments the other day, uh, Trump was asked about it and he said he shouldn't be lecturing us about anything. The World Trade Center came down during his watch. Bush led a failed and uninspiring presidency. He shouldn't be lecturing anyone. And I got to say, uh, when when he's right, he's right. Facts. Because th- this, the the fucking gall of this asshole, and the fact that like, I mean, and this is the other thing I I, I would like to underscore, um, with with this series here, the absolute gall of anyone pretending to like George W. Bush or like or or, or c- contrast him favorably with Donald Trump given everything that he did, and given even just 9-11 itself. If he had done nothing else in his presidency, just the utter and complete breakdown of our national security, and, you know, you can slot in your reasons for why that happened, and, you know, feel free to follow those conclusions anywhere they may lead you. But the idea that, that George W. Bush's reputation has all but been salvaged, largely because of Donald Trump and now the Capitol insurrection, is, uh, is stunning. But there's one other man here who is honestly even more than George W. Bush, uh, Mr. 9-11. And of course, I'm talking about Rudy Giuliani. Now, Rudy Giuliani, he was America's mayor. We all remember that. But wouldn't you know it, he showed up on, on this most previous recent 9-11 as well. And this is, a, this is a headline in the New York Post. You cannot have a friendlier outlet to Rudy Giuliani than the New York Post. This is their headline. Rudy Giuliani calls top general an a-hole for Afghanistan shambles in 9-11 speech. Ex-Mayor Rudy Giuliani at a 9-11 commemoration on Saturday called the top U.S. general an idiot and an a-hole, imitated Queen Elizabeth, and distanced himself from Prince Andrew. She said, you did, you did a wonderful job on September 11, and therefore I'm making you an honorary knight, commander of the royal something or other. I turned down a knighthood because if you took a knighthood, you had to lose your citizenship. I know Prince Andrew is very uh, questionable now. I never went out with him. Ever. Never. Never had a drink with him. Never was with a woman or a young girl with him. Ever, ever, ever. One time I met him in my office and one time when we had the party. Right, Bernie? You were there. (laughs) Did did you Uh, listen to it? (laughs) He sounded absolutely shit-faced. He so, was so what? hammered. It's like the, well, it's the, the 20 year anniversary. Like he's after he saved all those lives, he's he is P- PSD. I got to tell you, <laughs> like when he was when he was on top of the world right after 9-11, when he was on the America's mayor front page of New York Times, if you'd been able to come back from 2021 and tell him that in 20 years, he will be spending all of his time. Uh, smoking cigars with names with guys named like Garbo Privman or whatever the fuck and waiting <laughs> for an indictment to land and never having been president or like God emperor like he I guarantee you thought was going to happen he wouldn't be he would be bummed I was I, I mean I would be happy I was like the Giuliani shit drove me insane even as a young boy like I, I it's like it was pretty insane to watch it was insane to watch him go on Saturday Night Live and all these good liberals like fawn over him and demand he be mayor for life but like, I wish I could go back in time and tell myself like, no, this guy's going to be indicted every week for trying to do Ukraine with uh, a bunch of guys who look like all the Three Stooges mixed together. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I, I, it is. I'm really, I really enjoy this. Like some Trump stuff, you get sick of, you know, like the Nelly Orr stuff or like the when he was Colonel Vindman or whatever the fuck you're like, shut up. I've seen enough of this. I can't get enough Rudy stuff. It's so yeah. gratifying for me. It's like he is absolutely the least respected man in America. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's, what's incredible about it. And that's why I want to begin. I want to begin this reminiscence with the figure of Rudy Giuliani, because there is, there is nobody who has done a more, it's just like like monumental 180 in the level of like national public respect than Rudy Giuliani in the last 20 years. But this is the point that I want to underscore the whole, the, the, everything we're talking about here is that Rudy Giuliani is exactly the same guy now as he was on the morning of 9-11 and everything and then like the days, months, and years that followed. He is the exact same person. He's just maybe a little bit sweatier and a little bit more senile. But he is like, but nothing has really changed at all. 
but like the monumental cultural and political acclaim and respect that this guy fucking got unearned by the way because many of the most of the firefighters who died on 9-11 was because of his fucking incompetence yeah they didn't yeah like they the radios didn't fucking work and this is a problem that him and bernard carrick didn't fix from the 1993 world trade center bombing and he put the emergency response headquarters for the city in the fucking trade center. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, yeah. after, after the ninety after the ninety three World Trade Center bombing, they had the new New York City Emergency Response Command Center for disasters and terrorist attacks and things of that nature was all set up and ready to go. And they personally made the decision to change the location from a you know. So, a secure location to one directly under the Twin Towers. So all of that CNN, all that news footage of him wandering about the streets covered in ash, looking like a leader, was just purely an accident of his own incompetence. And again, everything rhymes here. Everything that we're going to talk about is an accident of our own incompetence. But like, it, it, it's so funny, like Giuliani, like I said, the, the, the monumental shift in, in him going from being probably one of America's greatest heroes and our most respected leaders across party, geography, race, class, gender, whatever, to now probably the most lampooned and buffoonish figure in American history uh, is, is stunning, but he's exactly the same guy. And we can look at a lot of things in our culture that like, seems to have changed wildly, but we are still exactly the same people with exactly the same brains and exactly the same essential programming. And... If, I don't know if we've gotten dumber or what, but it's hard to believe we were, we were dumber now than right after 9-11. Well, that, the thing is, is that now, yes, everyone's an idiot, but they're all, everyone's pursuing their, their mind palaces in the digital sphere, uh, and they're all free to be whatever kind of idiot they want. In the waning days of monoculture that, that were still uh, existing at that point, there was like state-mandated idiocy. Like there yeah. was, there was one way to be stupid and you had to be that way. You had to be dumb as fuck to be a, to be able to make a public statement of any kind. Yeah. And no, yeah. You were, unless you, for like the first three years after, I want to say you would be drummed out of public life unless you were like, we need to invade Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, Syria. <laughs> like it was, it was mass hysteria. I think that's a good way of thinking about it, Matt, because like we live in a we live in a culture now governed by a seemingly infinite number of discrete idiocies. Mm -hmm. Whereas after nine eleven and like the first Bush the first term of the Bush administration and the dawn of the war on terror, we were ruled by one mega monolithic idiocy, yep. which was the flag, the troops, the brave first responders, and then yeah, George W. Bush, Rudy Giuliani, and like from the moment that Bush showed up with the megaphone at the Twin Towers or Rudy Giuliani, you know, uh, this is the first thing I wanted to talk about was the SNL after 9-11 where oh, the cold God. open, the cold open was like all 9-11 first responders, which is like, you know, these, these guys had like for like the past two weeks been like digging bodies out of the fucking wreckage. So like, I mean, it took a moment of like, yeah, like a, a general genuine trauma and a feeling of respect and admiration for the firefighters and rescuers who were, you know, uh, who either lost their own lives or were, you know, working in the recovery effort. But it was all, it was like, it was a cold open and it was just like, a, like the, the, the stage of SNL was all uh, police and firefighters. But right in the middle of them was Rudy Giuliani. And it was this like sort of moment of silence until Lorne Michaels took it upon himself to ask, to ask Rudy Giuliani is it, can we be funny again? Saturday Night Live is one of our great New York City institutions, and that's why it's important for you to do your show tonight. Can we be funny? <laughs> why start now? And, and once, once Rudy Giuliani officially bestowed permission to, to, to Lauren Michaels, they were like, okay, yes, we're ready to laugh again, and then proceeded to have, like, you know, 90 minutes of the least funny shit you've ever seen in your life. But... I'm like, and then the other thing I, 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 I like to, to frame this is a uh, bad, bad food restaurant and sissy, uh, sissy entrepreneur, Graydon Carter. Uh, he was the one who was quoted after 9-11 as saying the, the end of the age of irony had arrived. And then another quote here attributed to Roger Rosenblatt of Time magazine wrote, one good thing that could have come from this horror, it could spell the end of the age of irony. And there was this like this idea that sort of cynicism, uh, gallows humor, 
and just sort of like a, a distrust of authority and like that kind of that 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 Gen X like hey we're cooler than everything like that vibe had been like it was it was this expectation and really like they weren't responding to anything that had happened it was an admonition and a demand that like that's where we're at now we're no no more irony uh, no more no more snickering in the back of the classroom no more cool kids there was an age, this was an age of patriotic correctness and holy shit it became hegemonically enforced and like it's it's so funny now to like think about cancel culture now because there is never like cancel culture was so rigorously enforced during this era like from the top down like actual like the state canceling the state and like powerful like institutions canceling people for completely anodyne and honestly like looking back you know as we all should have known at the time totally sensible humane thoughts about like are we overreacting to this or like maybe we should not maybe the answer to this is not just go to war with the rest of the world because like maybe that's one of the reasons that this should happen in the first place but it's basically this idea that like this patriotic correctness and 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 this idea that irony was dead it was like it was imposed on all of us but it basically ultimately failed and led to even weirder and more insane forms of cultural expression and like i said this world of discrete insanities that we all live in now yeah, I mean, people, there are definitely, like, examples uh, in the past few years, people getting canceled for, like, you know, things that are, like, in retrospect kind of stupid, but it was not quite like this, where you would get canceled for saying, I don't think we should invade another country. I don't think we should kill a million people. And by canceled, it meant, like, completely drummed out of public life, and it, it, in fact, everyone was incentivized to hate that person. They fired poor Phil Donahue. Yeah, Phil Donahue's last show on MSNBC was him and Pat Buchanan. They were supposed to argue about Iraq, but they both agreed on it. And MSNBC <laughs> was like, fuck you, we're going to hire Michael Savage for six weeks until he tells a caller to get AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another example of someone being canceled for something they shouldn't have been. <laughs> yeah, I, we... we uh, Everybody complaining about cancel culture uh, and trigger warnings and all that shit. It's like the old uh, uh, anti-drug commercial. I learned it from watching you, Dad. Yeah, literally. Like this whole thing, this whole cultural uh, dynamic was forged after 9-11. Not coincidentally, the exact same time that internet culture was literally being created, where uh, the assumption was is that you had certain things you were not allowed to say because it would upset people. It would remind them of the horrors of the towers and you were, and, and if you were insufficiently uh, solicitous to the victims and if you were insufficiently bloodthirsty to pun punish the perpetrators, you were committing violence against people uh, and you needed, you, you, it was the responsibility of uh, the people to, to rebuke you. Uh, and that's been with us ever since like that model of how to respond to the media and the world around us as like this parade of traumas that we have to avoid being triggered by that's all that context is set by nine 11 and, and, and the response to it. If anyone, yeah, everyone remembers last summer where this thing starts out as like a genuine social movement. And then like within a month, it just be it, it, like, unfortunately things get filtered through our media consumption culture. And it, it the way that most people end up seeing it is like Totino's being like, we're posting a black square <laughs> and that like people, a lot of people correctly identified this as uh, ridiculous. And at the same time, go back 20 years. This was happening every day, yeah. except it was like the Disney channel supports our war efforts in Iraq. <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry, a thousand times more ridiculous and insane. Like, I mean, I've seen people bring this up again. There was an Amanda Bynes movie where they edited yes. edited the she, billboard yes. for her not to hold up the peace sign because that would be offensive to people who want war. Hey, yeah. you don't you don't know if somebody uh, has trauma from watching 9/11. That may yeah. offend and people. They need to uh, uh fantasize about blowing up Arabs. It's 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 necessary for them. Yeah. It's part of their it's part of their therapy. 
We they need I mean, to exercise their trauma by doing nine eleven every fucking day for twenty years. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I I think like uh like trigger warnings are are a very funny way to think about all this because I mean you remember from uh, hypernormalization when Adam Curtis had that montage of like every summer movie that came out in the years preceding nine eleven that was just like a fucking just a carousel of like skyscrapers in New York City imploding on themselves or being wiped out by some gigantic alien force or Godzilla and it was just literally bodies tumbling out of fucking office buildings shrieking to their deaths on the street below it was this this rehearsal of like all of our sort of like deepest fears but really our fondest wishes because like we love nothing more than seeing America get destroyed and then immediately after 9-11 happened all that shit had to be like sort of like cleansed from our culture like we couldn't like like anything that like um showed anything that was like a, a, a an act of violence similar to 9/11 or a catastrophe of a similar nature anything that uh, per- portrayed uh, cops or firemen lo- firemen losing their lives that became triggering it became triggering to the entire nation and had to be erased i mean you remember uh the Sam Raimi Spider-Man the first trailer for that movie featured bank robbers in a helicopter like escaping from a bank job being ensnared in a giant spider web that was laid in between the twin towers and they instantly had to edit that out of the movie i mean i guess for obvious reasons but here's another example there were um over 164 songs that were banned from the radio by clear channel after 9-11 this is now i now not i heart radio but you're talking about like the corporation that owns something like 60 percent of the radio stations in america and here were some of the songs that were deemed lyrically questionable to play on the radio after 9-11 they include uh seven acdc acdc songs <laughs> including uh, Dirty Deeds, Highway to Hell, Safe in, the, Safe in New York City, TNT, and Hell's Bells. Also, Alanis Morissette's Ironic was banned from the radio. <laughs> As the plane crashed down, he said, well, isn't this nice? No, Alanis, uh, it is not nice when planes crash down. It is not nice when planes crash down into the Pentagon and into the Twin Towers and into Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Ma'am. That it, yeah. The thing that's very funny to me about this is like, like any conservative who's like they're like 40, 50, 60, like, you know, going on about how annoying college campuses are. And it's like, sure, you're right. Yeah. Uh, to an extent. But it, to a person, go back. I really I like I can't I really can't today. I went to Times Square in 1998. Yes. <laughs> I can't see this right now. <laughs> I can't listen to Pat Benatar right now. Uh, I, got, also, I got thrown out of the New York, New York casino for trying to take a dump on a blackjack table. <laughs> uh, my, my, my cousin is a firefighter in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. That's also in the Eastern time zone. I'm going to throw up. Uh, just like, it's just, some of these songs you would never, never get. Uh, the Beatles, Ticket to Ride. I guess that would remind people of, you know, airlines. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's "I'm on Fire" and Bruce Springsteen's <laughs> "Going Down" that that was banned from the radio. Obviously, Cat Cat Stevens songs are banned from the radio. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah uh, Busta Rhymes. I'm gonna do uh, thirty jackknife turns in front of the Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite is knots an hour. I think my favorite is the Bengals walk like an Egyptian. Yes, yes. That was it's bad. not pilot a plane like an Egyptian. What the fuck? <laughs> well, that's uh, what uh, Muhammad Atta was doing down the aisle. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, here, here's another great example. Um, uh, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World and Don McLean's American Pie were also banned from the radio. Uh, Louis Armstrong's is banned because they didn't think it would be appropriate to, to play a song about how nice everything is after 9-11. Yeah. Is everything American- okay? <laughs> no, it's not fucking okay! <laughs> and American Pie, I guess, is just too sort of uh, bittersweet. You know, well, no, like, remember, that song is about a plane crash. Oh, you're right, yeah. It's about our beloved heroes dying in the field of Minnesota in an airplane. So basically, every song that had to do with, like, uh, the Gap Band, You Dropped a Bomb on Me, uh, Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, any song that referenced, like, uh, air, uh, air, airlines, explosions, uh, fire, um, or just having a good time in New York City. <laughs> in New York City, uh, I'm back in the New York groove. That was banned. Um, yeah, uh, th- those are all excised from radio. And then, of course, like the 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 Ur example, of course, was the uh, protests in which uh, Dixie Chick CDs were 
uh, says here, and uh, uh, using a 33,000-pound tractor to obliterate compact discs and other items, a few hundred protesters in Bossier City, Louisiana, referring to themselves as backers of U.S. President George Bush and Barksdale Air Force Base, lashed back at Natalie Maines, lead singer of the Texas-based country act, the Dixie Chicks, over a recent comment. And we talk about how this is an enforced and imposed national stupidity. Of course, the government is doing everything to push that, but they're doing it in concert with this new uh, monopolistic media environment, thanks to 20 years of deregulation of telecoms and stuff, meaning that the Clear Channel at that point, as you said, has 60% of the fucking radio stations in the country. Uh, there are only a few um, media companies own any local news stations or newspapers, and they all have the same uh, goals as the White House, which is to impose just a constant screaming panic about this thing that could be could have in a different world have been processed with some degree of uh, proportion, but instead becomes this daily uh, emotional apocalypse because it's very, very useful for everyone if that's the way it is responded to. Um, in talking about like the disproportionate reaction to a threat or a traumatic event. I mean, um, I, I've noticed people bringing this up on Twitter, but I mean, it is interesting in light of living now, continuing to live through COVID, um, the disparate reactions between like, you know, 9-11, a discrete event that killed 3,000 Americans. If you, had, if you had, you know, suggested at the time, do you think our like reaction to like the like, sort of like just pure just pure like the running the numbers on like the likelihood of you being an American citizen in America being killed by a terrorist attack versus the, you know, trillions of dollars and millions of lives or lives we're going to waste on based as Dick Cheney explicitly said on the 1% doctrine. If there's even like a 0.001% chance of a terrorist attack happening in the future, then literally anything we do is justified in, in, in th like theoretically, you theoretically prevent, prevent an imaginary terrorist attack up to and including starting several wars, uh, legalizing torture. And like I said, killing about a million people. Do you think like, the, 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 the people like the people who are I mean, like COVID has been killing a 9-11's worth of Americans about every day for a year or so now. And it, it just doesn't it seems like our, our I don't know, our, our ability to um, assess risk is, is severely broken because well, like that, like the more you cared about 9-11 and the more tears you get in your eyes looking at flags, like the angrier you are at any suggestion that your life should be altered in any way because of COVID, whereas everyone's life had to change forever because of 9-11. Well, that's just it, though. It did it? Like, no, what, it what, did What did we have to do? If, if you were on the inside, if you were rooting for Team America after 9-11, the beauty was you didn't have to do anything differently. You, you got to badger your, uh, uh, your liberal neighbors for being insufficiently patriotic. You got to root on America's military as it flattened Middle Eastern countries. Uh, you got to uh, enjoy jingoistic programming and the most patriotic thing you could do, according to your own president, was go shopping. Yeah. Whereas COVID requires you to be like dealing with COVID requires you being a citizen of a country. And that's just antithetical. Like, like we, we we were in like not the late 90s. We've talked about we talked about Woodstock 99 episode. It's this doldrum. It's this question of like, well, what the hell are we even doing as a, as a nation, like, what is this project? And 9-11 gives us an answer, and the culture reinforces that. And it's sit back and watch us just destroy the goddamn world, and, and you get to continue the empty consumer experience that de uh, defined your life in the 90s, but with a new verve and meaning behind it. Not a challenge not that doesn't require you to do anything differently, but that gives the things you do more meaning, like go to fucking Disneyland. And put a fucking W bumper sticker on the back of your car, or or have a fucking a yellow flag in front of your house, or something. Those magnetic or, yellow like, car yellow ribbons were right. everywhere. Those were everywhere. Yeah. Do you remember like everyone's sort of like memory hold this weird period that was like very early March, sort of late February, where like no one really knew what the virus was, and like the bungalow was like, we're not like there's no virus. Everyone go to restaurants. Yeah. It was like that, but for like seven years yeah and that worked for uh for at that point because hey this is a plug-and-play empire like it's a volunteer army you don't have to do shit but like an actual virus that has an actual impact on people if they get it and, and transmit it that that it doesn't work the same way and so uh all of those signals just break down 
Well, yeah, and it was. I mean, the great thing about a volunteer empire and the plug and pl- or the a volunteer army in the plug and play empire is that it's it's sort of Schrodinger's war. You it, you don't have to sacrifice as a civilian. In fact, you you're supposed to do the opposite of sacrificing. They're fighting for your piggish way of life. You yep. have to keep living it every fucking day. But any time that you raise some concern about Gitmo or civil liberties or anything, just anything at all going on in the country, we are at war. I mean, the perfect example of that was like, I remember there was this uh, sort of like furtive attempt to uh, begin to question uh, the, the, the American lifestyle's reliance on cheap gasoline as maybe being the source of some of our problems. And then at the same, like, at that moment, like, that was suggested for even a second. It was like, no, fuck you. We're having the Hummer now. Everyone is yeah. driving a Hummer. After like, getting 50 miles to the gallon, that is, like, the new, like, that is, that is fucking, like, yo, if you have anything less than that, you're a fucking pussy. You're a traitor. You're fucking, you hate the troops. Everyone's got to drive gigantic gas-guzzling SUVs now. The Hummer, the Hummer is so perfect. That's the, that the is, perfect yeah. emblem of 9-11 culture. We're, we're going to war. We're, we're going to have a clash of civilizations to defend our way of life. Not me personally, uh, all the all the dipshits that went to high school with me. Uh, I am going to buy a military vehicle and drive it to uh, fucking Fuddruckers and pretend that I'm doing a, like a, a patrol of Baghdad. The H2, one of the ugliest cars oh, ever created. Brutal. And it was supposed to be like, I remember when I remember in the 90s when fucking Arnold had a Hummer. Like as a, as as his car yeah, after that, after the, Desert the Storm. one that was, yeah the, the one big wide one yeah like the actual like military spec Hummer and I was like damn like Arnold's the coolest motherfucker alive how he like only Arnold gets to have a military yep. car and drive around smoking cigars I'm ballsy I could drive my Hummer I park it wherever I want um, but then then the H two became and it's like every suburban mom could have one of these hideous gigantic cars and it it, it is so funny because the Hummer of course is like the signature vehicle of the U S military. And during the Iraq and Afghanistan war, it became the signature coffin and fucking <laughs> just fucking death trap for every fucking soldier who had to be inside one when an IED went off. But here at home, of course, the, the, the H2 just killed other people on highways because that, yeah. that was like the that was the real invention of these like tank like SUVs is like, oh, like, oh, like they, they only kill other people. If you get in car accidents, you'll be fine. And I guess like. It's it's this it's it's the it's the magnetic yellow bumper sticker and it is this like like I said this this patriotic correctness that was all focused around originally and you know like not not with not unwarranted it was originally about first responders it was about the, the FDNY the paramedics and also the NYPD but like to a large degree it was like a, you could understand the reaction of like wanting to to valorize like you know first responders or people who lost their lives or tried to save lives but then it immediately became they they, they and what they went through became immediately connected to Rudy Giuliani and George W Bush and then of course the policies of the Bush administration which became the troops and the troops really uh, this is what it all hinges on here like i mean like this is what was so enforced, like from like from school kids to everyone, like we it just, and I think a big deal about this is that like certainly not all Americans, but if you're talking about the media, academic, intellectual, and political elites in in America on 9/11, the vast majority of them were baby boomers who lived through the Vietnam War and opposed it or got out of it, and then spent the rest of their lives basically feeling guilty about it. Yeah. And like they like even though they they like they 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 protested it when they were when they were in college or whatever and they like you know I guess correctly at that time assessed that it was an unjust war but of course it was one that they had skin in the game in well, because, exactly you know, yeah like the draft like, I, I don't want thing. I yeah. don't want to go yeah I don't want to fucking go to Vietnam but I think a lot of them despite sort of that being the crucible that formed their politics I think a lot of them were kind of embarrassed about it and yeah. and then be and then as they like became older and more successful and became like you know these sort of mandarins of american culture felt a sense of shame about that about not serving about not heeding the the bugle call and i think it was like and, and then 911 became their opportunity to relive the experience of vietnam but in but in which we were the good guys and that we finally had post cold war an opportunity for america to define itself and answer that question that Woodstock 99 pose that you brought up earlier, Matt, like, what are we doing here? What the fuck is the point of this all? Like, why are we even here? And then 9-11 gave them the perfect opportunity to demonstrate that. And it would be, it would be an opportunity to show that America was good, and most importantly, it allowed them 
to support a military action that, you know, they had no, <laughs> they were not going to be involved in in any way other than being, being on and watching the news. Yeah. That, and that and became, that became a signal identity for Americans ever since. Like that is one of the defining types of person you have emerge after nine 11 is somebody who's, uh, identity is formed around their news consumption and the way that they respond to that. I know that's what I ended up doing. Like, well, I'm not, I'm sure shit not going to go fight in, uh, the war. I don't, I don't agree with the war. I'm horrified by the war, uh, but I don't really can't really imagine doing anything effectively to resist it besides, you know, impotent protest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay a shit ton of attention to the goddamn news. And, you know, in the, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, all of the major networks uh, went four straight days of nonstop commercial-free news coverage. Uh, estimated they forfeited around $200 million worth of advertising in the process. But I guarantee you they gained that back in the long run oh, yeah. by just sort of like, finally the news mattered again. The news mattered again, and people in the news media understood that like, to the extent to which they mattered again, it depended on their ability to channel these feelings that were being enforced from the top down about how everybody is just on board with this war and this new struggle and this new, this new sense of purpose and this sort of revitalized messianic mission that has always been a part of America's DNA, but that we had uh, lost and that they, they were going to feel their oats again. They were going to rekindle that feeling and get over their shame and trauma about not fighting in Vietnam. And, uh, to that end, I mean, and then again, you, then you get things like "God Bless America" having to be sung at baseball games. Oh God, that's one. Of, that's one of my I mean, least favorite, least favorite so thing. That's still around. Oh yeah, that's still it, around. Oh, but uh, and only the Yankees though uh, yeah. insist on doing it at every game. Fucking Steinbrenners. And then you know, obviously, even worse than nine eleven was, of course, the Yankees losing to the Diamondbacks in the World Series in Game Seven. Well, no, that, that was I mean, ruled. That absolutely that, ruled. That was very appropriate. Because it's like, hey, guys, this is New York's year. No, this is really about people in Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true. It's perfect. It's true. It's absolutely perfect. It's true because, I mean, I I, I remember feeling, like, annoyed, having been a lifelong New Yorker, that, like, all of a sudden the entire country just regards themselves as New Yorkers. And everything's about, hey, New York or whatever after, like, you know, because let's be honest, like, we hate you and they hate us. Like, let's keep it that way. That's the way it should be. But you're right. It was never about people in New York. It was about people in fucking Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> they were the fucking winners. They were the fucking winners. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, New York was the site of, I mean, a lot of American major cities were, but New York was the site, I think, of the biggest uh, counter Iraq war protests in the nation. Yeah. And, it was and, a, it's, yeah. Like, and it's like, fuck you, pal. <laughs> like, it was the 2004 RNC convention, which was held in New York City. I think roughly half a million people uh, turned out to the streets of Manhattan to protest the Iraq War and the Bush administration. Yeah, and they threw them all in jail. And 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 uh, well, I'm sorry, not in jail. Uh, uh, concentration camps. The, just peers. It was yeah. the, the the Chelsea peers, basically. <laughs> um, uh, just the, just the, like one other, one other like uh, forgotten bit of uh, 9/11 ephemera. This is one of my favorite. And this is like I remember like. I remember when I like heard about this, like I, I had felt like a, a, a very like spine chilling feeling that like, I, I don't like where this is going. Like, I don't like the people who are in charge. Like, this seems like a different country. This seems like I do not like the direction we're going. And this was, of course, when um, John Ashcroft's Justice Department spent $8,000 to uh, cover the tits of a statue. That was classic. <laughs> it was because he didn't want to just have a have like, you know, uh, the, you know, the blind justice. He didn't want to have like one tit just Can't walked out. People are going to get he, so horny giving, that they're going to just like run into the statue and break their dicks on it. Can't happen. But like, and he said it was because he didn't want like 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 new uh, him to be framed by tits when he's giving very serious press conferences about how our color coded terror alert had to be raised <laughs> from orange to red. I mean, like that to me even more than than freedom fries heralded a a. a a new era. And then I guess like the other thing that's been completely forgotten about like the nine eleven and the immediate aftermath of it is that like not even a week after the Twin Towers came down, people started getting anthrax sent to them in the mail, including Tom Daschle and like like CBS and like five people died and like 16 people were like gravely in like, you know, sent to the hospital almost died because of it. 
And uh, basically, <laughs> the FBI closed the case in 2008 after their main suspect killed himself. Yeah, they just said, yeah, he probably did it. <laughs> and I mean, the guy they originally like, whose name was put in the media, uh, Stephen Hatful, I think his name was, uh, that, that ruined his life. But of course, he was <laughs> exonerated almost immediately after. Richard Jewell the, style. Yeah, Richard Jewell style. But the, the main guy, after they killed himself, the FBI closed their investigation. <laughs> and they closed it because he worked at Fort Detrick, Maryland, in the bioweapons division. Which is where the fucking anthrax <laughs> where, that's came That's where from. the anthrax came from. It like, came from our, the Army's own bioweapons labs. The anthrax attack is, is forgotten now. But I really do think that it was incredibly important in keeping the hysteria after yes, 9-11 absolutely, going. Absolutely. Because, yes, absolutely. I mean, yes, like these towers going down was just this absolutely psychically traumatizing event that that all culture revolved around. But there's only so much if you're living in Des Moines that you can work yourself up that they're going to like Al Qaeda is going to come and uh, blow up the corn palace or whatever the fuck. Uh, But once, once there's a fucking deadly bacteria in the mail, (laughs) in the fucking mail, anybody could be killed by terrorism. And And then, yeah, uh, we don't know who did this. Probably Iraq uh, or this guy. He's dead now. Never mind. Uh, yeah, we yeah, it was made in a government lab. What, what are you asking about? No, but that's 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 exactly right, Matt. It, it was like it was so crucial into um, universalizing this fear of terrorism, and that the, and that like the idea that the next terrorist attack was going to happen, like you know, not a question of if, but when, as Donald Rumsfeld famously said, that like, and that any corner of America was gravely gravely in danger of like uh, a suicide bombing or so or the next 9-11 from like like every every small town suburb city every corner of america like people were just like just just waiting just waiting for the fucking next terrorist attack to happen even though like you know realistically like <laughs> if you like if you don't live in new york la or dc or chicago it's like the chances of a terrorist attack happening to you Pretty fucking small, but like I said, the anthrax attacks like universalized this feeling of of, the, the, of absolute terror and fucking trauma, and like and prolonged it to a great degree. And then what do you know? It of course in the um, run up to the Iraq War, it was Saddam Hussein's anthrax and his mobile biological weapons labs became a huge uh, you know a piece of evidence to justify the invasion. I guess um, the news became important again, but I'd like to talk about now, and I'd like to, to close out part one of this reading uh, of this episode with a uh, reading series that deals with the sort of the rise of the, the the internet, internet-based news, and like the blogosphere, because like that was, you know, that that was the other thing. Because like Matt, you mentioned like all of this was happening at a time when internet culture was just beginning to start, and then all of a sudden the news became the most important thing in the world, and because of the internet. We saw the creation of these kind of civilian journalists, as they were, as they called themselves, as opposed to be like, and, and you know, like the 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 ones who got very successful originally with this were all shrieking, bloodthirsty ghouls. The, these are people for whom Fox News and CNN and NBC were not doing enough to support. America's, uh, you know, America's role to just kick the shit out of like every other country in the world and kill as many Arabs as possible. And like the opposing pole to that, the liberal bogosphere, which also like came up at the same time, people forget guys like Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias, a lot of these like uh, a lot of these names that um, are, are common parlance now. They were not like conservative or reactionaries, but they all we're going for that audience. They all, I mean, not, not, not that audience. They wanted to get a link from guys like Glenn Reynolds, the Insta pundit. And to do that, you had to be psychotically devoted to this clash of civilizations, like a uh, fucking just absolute mania and hysteria. Everybody, everybody. That was the everybody. minimal standard for being a serious person. That's the thing. It's like, it looks back, look back through it now. It's like, yeah, this was ma- insanity. This was uh, taking a, a thing that happened and turning it into an existential threat in a way that made no logical sense, making it the, the, the pole of all foreign and domestic policy in a way that was just wildly uh, out of proportion. But believing that was the minimum requirement to be considered a serious person. If you did not accept that, all those assumptions, 
you could just be safely uh, written off. And so for a lot of these guys, no matter what they thought about it, that was the incentive. They had to give they had to give homage to this point of view, or else they couldn't be accepted as a as a as a rational interlocutor. And for guys like you know Maddie and Ezra, like I'm sure they feel embarrassed about it now, but it worked for them. They're oh, fucking yeah. million, they're fucking millionaires off this. Yeah, they do they, they than anyone been, else. If they had said, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't do this shit," they wouldn't have been funneled through uh, the 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 take shoot to become August Men of Letters. They would have been written and, off as uh, as cranks. And like, yeah, so exactly. Go, go hang out with Janine Garofalo. And yeah, like they, they wanted to, they wanted to get like linked to by like the big boys, you know that like that's how you that's how you come up. And I'm, by big boys, I mean here, I'm thinking of one guy I mentioned, uh, uh, Instapundit, who like heretofore was this like law professor based out of Tennessee, whose most of his like writing and intellectual output was based on like his his idea about how feasible it would be to upload his brain into a computer. <laughs> And live forever, and then also about sex bots as well. Um, but it just like this, a, a libertarian techno futurist who uh, really um, rose to the moment and became a, and you know, like just in like in, in one sentence, like hyperlinks would just be like advocating genocide in the, in the Middle East. Yeah, and he and he became a serious thinker. That is, um, that is something that we've completely memory hold. Um, just how okay it was to say that, say, we need to kill 10% of all Muslims in the world to send a message. <laughs> Howard Stern said that after yeah. 9-11. He said we should nuke one random Arab city. Yeah. No, <laughs> this was totally okay for a pretty long time. Until the 2010s, this was where you could be a mainstream person and say this and really not get that many consequences for saying it. But okay, so I, I've, for my reading series here, I, 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 this, this may seem an odd one to like do on a nine eleven episode, but I, I don't know, like if you're not of a certain age and was not, we're not plugged into the political blogosphere, this will seem insane to you. But what I'm about to read, but consider it's even more insane because this was considered like a ground, like a game changing essay that like defined an era. And when this guy died recently, people like Megan McArdle were singing his praisers. I'm talking, of course, about the famous internet screed, The Pussification of the Western Male by Kim de Troyes. Kim de Troyes! Kim de Troyes. <laughs> let's, talk about, like, let's talk about that pussification, <laughs> Senor de Troyes. When you get that estrogen in the drinking water, <laughs> the jackrabbit gonna kiss a grizzly bear. <laughs> uh, th- this was a much celebrated, much shared sort of like call to arms among the America's armchair warriors, the war bloggers. And I think you see the DNA of a lot of like contemporary conservatism in this essay. Um, but I mean, it's a great example of like the, the writing style and like mentality of this era. These were and like the- I said, like, and like, like the, like the, like the like liberal bloggers and like people who are trying to do this from like a, like a, not even, not a left wing, just like a pro Democrat perspective. I don't think they wanted to be this guy. But I think they wanted his approval. Like this was the baseline that was considered reasonable and like the, the, the new dominant point of view among like American culture that had to be respected or at least acknowledged. So keep that in mind when I read this essay to you. Okay, this is The Pussification of the Western Male by Kim de Troyes, who was a very, very big war blogger of, of this era. We have become a nation of women. <laughs> it wasn't always this way, of course. There was a time when men put their signatures to a document, knowing full well that this single act would result in their execution if captured and in their forfeiture of their property to the state. Their wives and children would be turned out by the soldiers and their farms and businesses most probably given to someone who didn't sign the document. There was a time when men went to their certain death with expressions like, you can all go to hell, I'm going to Texas. In parentheses, Davy Crockett to the House of Representatives before going to the Alamo. Davy Crockett, by the way, absolutely did not think he was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Davy Crockett got got executed after the battle and the whole time. He was like, no, man, come on. I was kidding. There was a time when men went to war, sometimes against their own families, so that other men could be free. There was a time when men went to war because we recognized evil when we saw it, and we knew it had to be stamped out. There was a time when a president of the United States threatened to punch a man in the face and kick him in the balls because the man had the temerity to say bad things about the president's daughter's singing. We're not like that anymore. 
Okay, that's the beginning. And here, like here, it, it captures the the absolute giddiness of a of a a, a basically a housebound anime fan <laughs> that. Because, you know, Kim Dutrois, after he retired from political blogging, would just simply post photos of, like, Lolly and, like, I don't know, just, like, anime schoolgirls and shit like that and be like, this one's my favorite. Yep. The the palpable giddiness that they felt about America, not them being at war, but America being yes. at war, which means, de facto, they are at war. Yeah. And that, like, that, that the lives of every fucking, like, 18-year-old that we sent into Baghdad and all the people they killed over there, that was just fodder. For this certain kind of, like I said, boomer to Gen X personality that had been like their entire lives up till 9-11 was one giant failure to be a man. Yeah. And that now this was like we now have America now had a sort of like the, the all the world is a stage. And it is like, and then you watch the news to see evidence of your own masculinity, and to the extent to which we uh, succeed or fail in the war on terror is a like psychic tabulation of your own masculinity. Yeah, Chris, uh, Christopher Hitchens admitted it. He said, "When I saw the towers go down, uh, I got hard." I mean, basically, that's what he said. He's like, I, "There was a, 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 a uh, what was the word he used?" Uh, he said he was exhilarated. Exhilarated. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was the first hard on he had in years. Yeah. Fucking gin, gin-soaked wretch that he is. <laughs> um, but yeah, he says, we're not like that anymore. Now, little boys in grade school are suspended for playing cowboys and Indians, cops and crooks, and all the other familiar variations of good guy versus bad guy that help them learn at an early age what it was like to have decent men hunt you down because you were a lawbreaker. <laughs> is, that, is that the lessons that kids learn from playing cops and robbers? I mean, you know, I always like to be the robber. I root for the bad guy. So does Kim Dutois. Yeah. Uh, now men are taught that violence is bad, that when a thief breaks into your house or threatens you in the street, that the proper way to deal with this is to give him what he wants instead of taking a horsewhip to the rascal or shooting him dead where he stands. Like, I, like look, okay, like, just look up an image of Kim Dutois when you're reading this. The idea that this guy has ever, like, been the victim of or done violence to anyone in his life for any reason is... Laughable. It's yeah. it, it, it's it's insane. Kim Kim Dutois kind of looks like he could be like movie Bob's dad. Yes, he does. <laughs> he absolutely does. Now he goes on. Now men's fashion includes not a man dressed in a three piece suit, but a tight sweater worn by a man with breasts. It's like, dude, you you have tits. You got you them titties, that, right? Dude. He, he's got some sweat. He's got some tiggles. But like, okay, this, see what I mean? Like, you can see the DNA of Trump in here because it's just like, it starts out like we used to horse whip cattle rustlers around these parts or just hang them high. And then he's like, fashion today is so messy. What happened <laughs> yeah. to the three piece suit? This Why is, don't we? <laughs> yeah. No stars. This is, um, this is the Genesis of Roman statue guys happened in the, in the embers of nine 11. Yeah. Uh, now he says, now, warning labels are indelibly etched into gun barrels, as though men have somehow forgotten that guns are dangerous things. Now, men are given Ritalin as little boys, so their natural aggressiveness, curiosity, and restlessness can be trolled instead of nurtured and directed. And finally, our presence, our, sorry, and finally, our president, who happens to have been a qualified fighter pilot, lands on an aircraft carrier wearing a flight suit and is immediately dismissed with words like swaggering, macho, and the favorite epithet of Euro girly men, cowboy. Of course he was bound to get that reaction, and most especially from the press in Europe, because of the process of male pussification over there is almost complete. How did we get to this? In the first instance, we have to understand that America is that America is first and foremost a culture dominated by one figure, mother. mother. It always it wasn't always so. There was a time when it was father who ruled the home, worked at his job, and voted. So, like, yeah, like you you see that you see the DNA of like the manosphere and kind of like uh you know like uh like incel this idea that like uh the, the most oppressive force in American life is the gynocracy. Yeah. It's it's mother. It's mother telling you to clean your clean up your room. It's mother telling you to eat your vegetables, and that this has made America weak. And we must. And again, like the <laughs> the people least suited to the task, we're now going to take up arms to rekindle uh, patriarchal authority, sort of like a masculine vigor, uh, r- sort of run, running roughshod and being being uh, you know brave and bold and spitting and shooting and chewing. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
among a set of people who like get, would get winded walking down a flight of stairs. <laughs> he goes, in the 20th century, women became more and more involved in the body politic and in industry and in the media. And mostly, this has not been a good thing. When women got the vote, it was inevitable that the government was going to become more powerful, more intrusive, and more protective because women are hardwired to treasure security more than uncertainty and danger. It was therefore inevitable that their feminine influence on politics was going to emphasize, lowercase s, social security. I am aware of the fury that this statement is going to arouse, and I don't give a fig. What I care about... Damn. It, <laughs> not, Damn. A, not a single fig? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in NORAD looking, looking at like eight screens. Uh, we got a problem, Major. We thought he was going to give a fig. There's no sign of a fig. He's fresh out. And, and we're, we're looking for signs of him giving a care. He's not even doing that. This fat boy is crazy. I came here to eat figs and to kick butt, and I'm all out of figs. (laughs) And I have a cyst in my lower leg. So I'm I'm just going to write this article. He goes, (laughs) I'm going to illustrate this by talking about TV, because TV is a reliable barometer of our culture. Of course you're going to talk about TV. It's all you do. You don't have any other points of reference. What is some anthropological research? (laughs) Click. (laughs) <laughs> what else would you talk about? What else do yeah, you exactly. know? <laughs> he goes, I'm going to ta- my- I'm going to talk, you know, I'm going to talk about like a real uh, a place in my life where I see masculinity disappearing. The packaging of frozen dinners. <laughs> there used to be a strong man putting the hungry man into the oven. And now it's some bitch. <laughs> Felix, you joke, but like, listen to the listener where this goes. He goes, uh, in the 1950s, the TV dad was seen as the lovable goofball, perhaps the beginning of the trend, but he was still the one who brought home the bacon and was the main source of discipline. Think of the line, wait until your father gets home. From that, we went to this, the Cheerios TV ad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Goes, these guys, these, these guys haven't gotten a new act in like thirty years. What the fuck? He goes now for those who haven't seen this piece of shit. And now here's just another thing I'd like to point out about Kim Tatois. He um he he cusses in this article, but he misspells the cuss words. He spells shit here s a s c h i t. Sort of like the Zodiac killer. I mean, I don't know. Like, so like, apparently, um, actually writing a curse word is um too rough and tumble and masculine for him because he can't bring himself to just write shit. He has to. He has to sort of like. He's like, I don't know. What if what, this is a family blog? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. The ki- kids come here to uh, learn horrific bloodlust. I don't want them to <laughs> be exposed to bad language. Uh, now, for those of you who haven't seen this piece of shit, I'm going to go over it from memory because it epitomizes everything I hate about the campaign to pussify men. The scene opens at the morning breakfast table where the two kids are sitting with dad at the table while mom prepares the stuff on the kitchen counter. The dialogue goes something like this. Little girl, note, not little boy. Daddy, why do we eat Cheerios? Dad, because they contain fiber and all sorts of stuff that's good for the heart. I eat it now because of that. Little girl, did you always eat stuff that was bad for your heart, daddy? Dad, humorously, I did until I met your mother. Mother, not not humorously, Daddy did a lot of stupid things before he met your mother. <laughs> now, every time I see that TV ad, I have to be restrained from shooting the TV with a 45 cult. If you want a microcosm of how men have become less men, this is the perfect example. Kim, you're right. If you want an example about how men have become pussies, uh, that previous sentence where a Cheerios ad makes you mad enough to shoot your television <laughs> with a gun is a perfect example of the phenomenon you're talking about. And guess what? Did you shoot your TV with a gun? No, because you want to watch more TV. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How am I going to watch my programs if I shoot my TV? Okay. And he goes on to keep, he talks about TV for so long here. He goes, he goes, now every, I goes, what dad should have replied to mommy's little dick. He's coming up with with zingers that the dad in a TV commercial should have fucking clapped back with. Being such Uh, a bitch that you can't even do this for your own life. You can't even come up with comebacks for your own life. (laughs) <laughs> yeah if i was that guy in that commercial let me tell you what i would have said to that that uh, piece if, of I, work. if i had a wife who corrected me this is what i'd say to her uh yes sally that's true i did a lot of stupid things before i met your mother i even slept with your aunt ruth a few times before i met your mother 
Hell, like, dude, that's that's all psychotic. That's that? why would you the say most, that? The most manly thing you can do is take out your psychosis on your kid. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, <laughs> then he goes, uh, you know what? Some women deserve to be single moms. <laughs> he goes, when I. What's up? He goes, <laughs> he goes uh, that's what he goes. That's what I would have said anyway, if my wife had ever attempted to castrate me in front of the kids like that. <laughs> Dude, homie, you just got castrated by a Cheerios commercial. <laughs> if your wife took your balls and it like, I mean, it's just they're already in a jar, man. Like, just give up. But like, I mean, like, this is what I'm saying. Like, this is why they like this kind of person. This is where their absolute bloodlust to commit genocide in the Middle East comes from. Yep. This is the only way that they could like feel a little twinge in their little the little worm in between their legs. Yep. It's the only way that they could like a, 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 just sort of accrue for themselves some feeling of like strength potency and like fucking masculinity at all yeah. these guys and this is the way they went about doing it because like i said at the end of the day he's being riled up by a fucking cheerios ad and feeling castrated by it it's like dude you don't have a dick to begin with you haven't seen your dick in 30 years just that, that's why we have to kill every muslim person on the planet is because of the, what because of a cheerios ad this guy saw he goes on here he says uh, when I first started this website, I think it, my primary aim was to blow off steam at the stupidity of our society. Because I have a fairly set view, because I have fairly set views on what constitutes right and wrong, I have no difficulty in calling Bill Clinton, for example, an effing liar and hypocrite. But most of all, I do this website because I love being a man. Amongst other things. <laughs> okay, stop. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. That's like, okay, we found it. That's American conservatism. Yep. I'm I'm a webmaster because I'm in the tradition of Davy Crockett and the Green Berets. There we go here. <laughs> Most of all, I do this website because I love being a man. There you go. That's the last 20 years, folks. That's, that's like that's the last 20 those years. Those are of the American pamphlets culture. we should have dropped on Baghdad. It's like it, it, it it's like why are we doing this? This is why. This is who we are. This is us. Uh, there, there is still quite a bit to this essay. Why don't we, why don't we stop here and and save part two of the pussification of the Western male for episode two? So, uh, let's 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 wrap up here. I do this website because I love being a man. Keep that in mind, and we will join you on Thursday for part two of nine eleven. What a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> we, I will be finishing the pussification of the Western male. We will be talking about um, movies, TV, and music, and uh, the weird ways in which uh, they tried to channel 9-11 and failed miserably. Um, and, of course, I'll be closing things out with, I mean, honestly, I should do this every year on 9-11. I mean, I do it for myself, but I'm going to share it with you. The baseball cranks uh, <laughs> memory of almost being killed on 9-11. <laughs> so tune in on Thursday for part two of the pussification of the Western Mail, more 9-11 retrospection, and the Baseball Cranks essay about nearly being killed by Al-Qaeda. Till next time, guys. Till bye next bye. time. Bye. Let the eagle soar Like she's never soared before From rocky coast to golden shore